You're listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that uh, my co-host, John Syracuse, cannot complain about it. Uh, Sometimes I complain, too. I'm Dan Benjamin, and uh, we would like to thank our two sponsors, audiblepodcast.com and uh, sourcebits.com. We'll tell you more about those as the show goes on. We'd also like to say thanks to Photocase.com, a new photography marketplace for creative stock photos. Start your love affair with Photocase now. You can use 5 by 5 as a coupon code, and you will save 15% on your purchase. So thanks to Photocase.com. How are you, John? I'm doing pretty good. It's good to uh, be back here in the virtual studio with you. It's been uh, a long week. My finger is much better. That's good. Did you talk about that on other shows? No, just uh, just this show. All right. Well, I don't think we need to go into it in too much detail, but you could post some disgusting pictures for the fans of their Trust episode. me, I I'm too embarrassed to to do that. I, and we don't we'll just yeah, we'll move on. All right. <laughs> oh. We get a so lot of feedback we- about about this segment of the show, the follow-up segment. We get more feedback about this than most of the topics. It just seems that way, I think. It's it's like it's like 50/50 split. Some people like it for the same reasons that I like it, and some people don't like it for the same reasons that I think you don't like it. Oh, I do. Then that's the thing. I do like it. I love well, the follow. I could do a whole. I could do every show. Could be a follow up on the previous show. I think we'd be do fine. That would be the talk show, then, right? <laughs> it's just everything is talking about was you talked about before, and you go around in circles. The other people just want us to get to the main meat of the show, right? Like immediately, but it's not. It's not how I operate. You got to circle back. Gotta, I'm, I like it. No, if, for the record, I have no problem with the follow up, John. All I right. like the follow-up. So let's get to it. To it. So last week we did No Eye Life is an Island. Uh, medium amount of feedback about this. I got I got a lot of feedback about this from people who I know personally, like my relatives and wife and everything, uh, because they are annoyed by it in the same way that I am. Right. Uh, and one uh, bit of information that I didn't talk about was something that has bothered me for so long that I guess I've forgotten about it. Uh, even if you ignore the server or the cloud or whatever else, if you just have a single Mac even, just like Apple seems to want you to have, but you have multiple accounts on it, even that very small sharing scenario, uh, Apple's apps kind of fall down because you're supposed to you know, switch from one user to the other and keep your own accounts and keep your stuff separate, which is great and everything. But then you have a single Mac, and, and if one person's logged into their account, they can't connect the, the camera to pull the pictures off of it because, oh, our iPhoto library is in the other person's account. Um, the thing that drove me nuts about fast user switching way back when they first introduced it in 2003 was that if you have a husband and wife and who share a Mac that's in their house, you, you both need to type your password to switch accounts. You can't just like say, okay, if, uh, if I'm not logged into my account, I give permission to automatically switch to this yeah. other person's account and vice versa. And so here we are, you know, it, it makes fast user switching it puts more of a barrier on it. I'm always trying to convince people like my parents and stuff to set up separate accounts. And they said, well, why don't we just both use the same account? It's easier because they don't want to enter their password. They don't want to select from that menu. It just puts a little you know, impediment there. But once I finally get them over that hurdle, now what I've done is said, okay, now you just have little islands of media because the iLife apps won't share your stuff. I've, I've done stuff with the user shared folder where you can put there's, there's a directory in Mac OS 10 slash users slash shared where the permissions are set up by default to be uh, friendly to, to uh, users who share the same group. And you can right. put some stuff there, like my music folders and user shared. But in general, the iLife apps and everything Apple does, 
doesn't have any way to share even on the, on a single machine. So it, it's even deeper than, oh, I have multiple Macs and I can't share or there's no cloud-based thing and stuff like that. Even at the very simple level of a single machine with two accounts, sharing falls down. I actually filed a bug on that fast user switching thing back in 2003. It's still open. Uh, I guess they're just never going to get it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, I give up on waiting on that one. That's Radar 33905155. Many Apple people are listening. Go put it out of its misery. <laughs> Close as works as designed or something. I think it was an enhancement request. Yeah, That might be my oldest <laughs> open bug because all my bugs from before that, I think they finally closed out. All right. Um, there's one thing that just I saw it fly by in the chat room. I saw it, saw it fly by on Twitter, and I think I actually retweeted it, but I thought it was worth throwing in here as a follow-up on the iPad stuff from two shows ago. Uh-huh. Someone uh, posted something on a site called TechInch that I'd never heard of before. Matthew G-U-A-Y that I'm not going to try to pronounce. And his article was, The iPad is the Microwave Oven of Computing. Mm. And it's a short one-pager little thing, and, and it's pretty self-explanatory. It kind of goes into how the, you know, the microwave is this new thing that seemed frivolous, and it was initially expensive, and people didn't understand why you needed one because you got a 50 different ways in your kitchen already to heat up food. Uh, and a lot of the early press about microwaves was how you could use it to like make an entire meal or make a, a souffle or bake a cake or do all these uh, things where they say, look, it's a complete replacement for, for another oven. Um, and we all know how this turned out. Microwaves are not complete replacements for other ovens, but now we all have them for some reason, even though before they were introduced, they seemed frivolous. Uh, my, my takeaway from this article is that this is certainly what Apple and other techies hope the iPad will be. And you can see a lot of similarities. I don't think you can make the case convincingly now that this has happened. But we'll wait. Wait five years and see if pretty much everybody you know has some sort of tablet computer, just like pretty much everybody you know has a PC now. Yeah. It took a long time for that to happen, for you to just pick a random person off the street and say, you've got a computer, right? Now pretty much everybody does. The same thing with cell phones went faster. Everyone had a cell phone seemingly overnight. So we'll see how the tablet things do. But I really like the analogy, and so did a lot of other people, which is why it's being retweeted all over the web uh, right now. I was surprised to see it pop up in the chat room as soon as I peeked in the window right after retweeting it and adding it to the show notes. <laughs> the, the, the speed of internet. Imme- uh, immediacy. It's all about immediacy. Yeah. I've got a little mini one from like three shows ago when I was complaining about, I think it was the Lion episode, I was complaining about uh, in Snow Leopard how they curved the bottom corners of the the windows in the yeah. QuickTime player. Yeah. Chopped off those little pixels. And yeah, I was you can get rid of that. Why can't I see those pixels? Yeah, so somebody, I forget who it was by now, but I had in the notes for a while, someone pointed out that you can get rid of those with one of those uh, P-list hacks where you you know use the defaults command from the command line. And yeah. what they pointed out was not just the hack, but this, this is an application which I actually have installed and I've had installed forever. It's a preference pane called Secrets. Secrets. Too many secrets. Yeah, and it's got... It's not uh, called so, too many secrets, is it? It's just called Secrets. Just Secrets. And it's got a server-side component uh, that tracks all these little tips, all these little commands you can type to add a little key to some property list for an application. And since it's server-side, it's updated frequently. So you've got this little preference pane, and you just go to it, and you find the application you want to know uh, some tweaks about it. And it says, here's all the list of funny tweaks that people have figured out. And because it's server-side, it's constantly updating or whatever. And I didn't even think to look there, but if you look there for QuickTime Player, or QuickTime Player, capital X, I guess is what they're calling the Snow Leopard QuickTime Player. Yeah, it's got a little hack for taking rid of the squ- getting rid of the square corners. Now I tried it, and it does cause a whole bunch of cosmetic issues, at least for me, where occasionally the window draws funny, and you get these little ugly things on it. And it doesn't get rid of my even bigger complaint about that player, which is the controller that floats over the movie. But 
it's something. And it, sh- it shows that someone at Apple, some engineer at Apple, was similarly anal retentive and said, what, you mean you want me to chop off those two pixels? Like some artist or designer said, yeah, no, we want the bottom corners rounded. And he was also offended <laughs> by, you know, by the principle of the matter and added right. this up. And so there it is. Yeah. Uh, I got the last one I have, I don't know. This, this, I was thinking that this could be a whole show, but I really doubt it. It's about the iPhone 5. Uh, now, I should actually put this tweet in the show notes, but back in July of 2010 when the antenna stuff was going on, it's a shame we didn't have the show then because I would have had a lot to say about the antenna thing. I did write something about it, but I, I felt like I could have expounded more. I but wanted anyway. to do the show for the record. I wanted to do it then. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway. Yes. So I, couldn't, just, I couldn't let that go. All right. Couldn't get it together. Yeah. But uh, one of my things that I was thinking of as this antenna thing was going through is, uh, I phrased it in the form of a question, is will Apple ever release a phone with an unshielded antenna, like where you can touch the antenna again? Like that was, and when all the dust had settled, that was the question in my mind. Uh, and it was a leading question because my answer was, no, I don't think they'll, they'll ever release another phone where you can touch the antenna. Like the next design, the next redesign of the phone, yeah. there will not be an antenna that you can touch on it. And I thought that for a lot of reasons. One, I thought that the ability to touch the antenna does make it more susceptible to interference than than you know antennas that you can't touch simply because you can get your body parts closer to it and you can't get any closer than touching right so if it was inside some plastic or maybe a couple millimeters away the distance that kind of distance counts especially if there's like you know a case between you and the thing or if you don't know where the antenna is when you can see the antenna and when you can touch it in specific places it's you're just going to have more problems now that doesn't mean that the antenna is worse it could be that the antenna is better than one that, that's inside a case and touching it merely brings it down to the same level as an internal antenna or maybe it doesn't make it as bad we don't I, I, that's never been settled as far as i'm concerned the whole is the antenna better and then touching it makes it as bad as the competition better and then touching it doesn't make it as bad as the competition i don't know but the bottom line is touching is is uh worse than not touching we just don't know what the net effect of it is. Yeah. But the real reason I think they're going to do it is because this whole hubbub over the, over the touchable antenna is just you know a PR annoyance to, for Apple. I wouldn't know if you'd call it a PR. I guess maybe you'd have to call it a PR disaster because when they have to call a press conference to settle an issue like that, that's raised to the level of disaster, I think. Mm-hmm. And so if only for the reason that they don't want to have to deal with that again, for the iPhone 5, let's just take the issue off the table. You know, hey guys, let's find a way to put the antenna someplace where you can't touch it, and then we just won't have to talk about this anymore. And maybe one or two guys will ask, "Oh, so you put it inside? Does that mean when we could touch it, you're now admitting it was bad that we could touch it?" They don't have to answer that. They can just say, "We think the iPhone five is great," and blah 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 blah. Right. I, I don't think that would be an admission of guilt or even admitting that the iPhone four, like it could be that they put the antenna inside, and the iPhone five has worse reception than the iPhone four because they put the antenna inside. But just to get the issue off the table. I feel like they're going to tuck that thing in there somehow. Um, and I don't remember how, how it came up because there was a couple of rumors of aluminum backside for the, for the iPhone 5 with a re- redesigned antenna. And supposedly the antenna was going to be behind the plastic Apple logo on the back. Or I don't know. I don't know what the iPhone 5 is going to look like. I have no idea. This is just vague rumors at this point. But I'm, I'm anxious to see where that antenna is. You, you want to like make a bet where it's going to be or if we're going to see a back, uh, aluminum back? I wouldn't bet on the aluminum back, but I would go 51% to 49 that it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to touch it with your hand. It'll be behind something. I've, I've been leaning that direction as soon as I saw that PR thing, just, just because, yeah. just to get it out of the way, not yeah. to have to deal with it. 
Uh, aluminum back I really like because I like the iPhone 1, how solid it felt. The iPhone 4 is nice too with the glass back, but I think that that's another instance where they learn the lesson of even if the iPhone 4's back doesn't crack any more than the 3G or 3GS did, the perception in the PR thing is like, well, maybe it's not worth it because people hear glass and they hear shattering and it breaks in a more spectacular way than the hairline cracks you got in the 3G <laughs> right. cases and stuff. I think they'll just be like, all right, been there, done that, let's move on to the next thing. I have uh, an iPhone 1, the first generation. I have a 3G. I don't have the 3GS and I have a 4. Of the, of the three of the four phones that I have, my favorite as far as how it feels in your hand when you're carrying it and walking around and talking on it is still the first generation phone. I, I like that. As far as how it feels when you're using it, not as a phone, but as a smart device, as a small computer in your pocket, I like the, the feel of the four better. I like the, the grippiness of it. It really does. I think uh, Steve Jobs was saying on stage when they announced it that it, it feels like it just feels so dense and it feels like a very, very high-end camera. I'd like that, but I'd love to see the back go back to an, an aluminum style the way the, the first generation one had it. just felt really like I never was worried about dropping it. And, and there are always people who will say, oh, I never dropped any of the phones or none of them are slippery or you know whatever. But for me, I think the first gen iPhone had, had the right feeling. You don't feel that the the squared off edges, speaking of like Apple's hardware blind spots from that episode about yeah. the sharp edges and the power box, you don't feel that the squared off edges in the iPhone 4 make it less comfortable in your hand than, for example, the more curved 3G, 3GS? You know, they, it depends on on how um, I'm holding it. If I'm holding it up to my ear to talk, which I almost never do, I always use a headset of some kind. But if I'm doing it that way, then then yeah, I prefer the curved shape to the square. But if I'm holding it in my hand and I'm using it as a smart device, then I don't mind so much the edges. But there, you know, I could go either way. I'm not I'm not picky about that. Yeah, they are rounded over. They're not like sharp, sharp. Like yeah, they they're are not on sharp. The MacBooks, but it does feel more like a rectangular solid. It, it looks a little bit more like an object of art than something that's meant to be held. Whereas the iPhone I one and and the three G one had the curves on them, it was kind of kind of acknowledging that. We want this to feel good in your hand. Or going to the extreme, you'd think of something like the uh, the Palm Pre, which their whole uh, the design, pebble, pebble mantra, design. Yes. yeah, polished stone in the river, and it really is a round, shapely thing like that. Their hardware's got other problems, but uh, that design philosophy is not coming from Apple. The iPhone four was a step away from that to say no. It's more like like the you know it, it's more like an industrial thing. It's more of a uh, what's that guy Dieter Rams kind of uh-huh. uh, design. So that's all I've got for follow up today. That's not see. That's not so bad. Yeah, people survived. Yeah, it's really, really not that bad. So today's topic, yes, chosen by Mister Benjamin from the list, the secret list that no one can see. Right. People is, have asked it for me to for me to disregard what you say and publish the list and solicit. Feedback, feedback, yes. And then, you threw, then you threw me under the bus when you replied to that guy. So I did. I, I own the list, and I have disdain for you. Do your, are you going to deny that? I mean, see, that's that's you need. You know what you need to add to the list, John? Is you need to add uh, your feelings about comments. We could do a whole show on that's on, on the list. Is that? <laughs> yes, it's the first one that you keep skipping over. I didn't read like that to me, but all right. Well, we'll that'll will, be a I next will show. I'll rephrase that so it's more clear what that show would be Thank about, you. and maybe you'll, maybe you'll pick it next time. Yeah, I will pick it. That is a good topic. Uh, <laughs> but today's is Apple's online learning disability, Mobile Me Ping, and other disasters. Yes. My, my one-liner uh, 
thing. Although when I think about it, there's not really many other disasters. It's just Mobile Me and Ping that we're going to talk about. But it sounds better when you say other disasters. Yeah. Maybe people people can add their own disasters. <laughs> so, uh, before we start on this, I think we'll just start with the, the premise. The, the premise is that the everyone pretty much agrees that Apple's online services are not the best. Uh, that's I don't think we have to debate that. It's generally a consensus of opinion. Like if you ask people, uh, you know, who does online really well? Does Apple do online really well? They say no, they're not great at it. They're right. good at other things, but they're not good at that. And if you just go by, if you ignore opinion, just go by number of people. People use lots of things online. People use Facebook, uh, you know, uh, Gmail, lots of services that have millions and millions of people. Not as many people use Apple's online services, or uh, it just doesn't have the numbers, doesn't have the users. It never did. Many competitors came from zero and right past it uh, for reasons we'll get into later. But so if you go by opinion or numbers, this is not Apple's strength. And this topic is basically why, what's the problem? Why is this not Apple's strength? How, how are they so good at everything, so good at seemingly everything they do, and that every time they touch online, they screw it up somehow? So what's the problem here? Um, and I think the way to come at that is to go in the other direction and say, what makes a good online service? And then see how Apple does in all these categories. I so like that. The, yeah, let's do that. The first category, I think, uh, and I'm, these kind of order, ordered in terms of importance. Uh, depending on my mood, they can go back and forth. But I think the number one has to be reliability. This is kind of true of everything where people ask you, you know, what do you look for in a house? What do you look for in a car? And, and the first answer isn't, well, the house should keep the rain out and the car shouldn't explode when I get into it. But with online services, I think the reliability in general has been so bad for all online services that you have to put reliability as number one. Because people, rightly or wrongly, have an apprehension about online stuff where their stuff is somewhere where they can't touch it. And their only access to it is through this wire that's you know connected to their house that they're relying on this utility company who they pay a monthly bill to to allow it to work. It's not the same in their mind as something that's physically in their house that only needs electricity to run. They're right. Comfortable that way. So reliability is the first big stumbling block for any of these online services. Uh, and and it, the worst thing about it is because when there is some sort of problem, it doesn't just affect you. Like my hard drive goes bad and I can't get my stuff for a while, it's very upsetting to me, but my neighbor doesn't have a problem, and no one else has a problem. The, the local problems are distributed randomly across time, whereas if there's some sort of online problem for, with, for example, you know, you can't get your email and you use Yahoo Mail. Well, everybody who uses Yahoo Mail can't get their mail, so a million people are pissed off and inconvenienced at the same time, and it's a bad, bad scene. So that kind of magnifies the effect of of reliability for online services. Now, Apple's, I'm going to pick, for this whole section, I'm going to pick on uh, .Mac, uh, MobileMe. Uh, it's gone on very under various names, sort of like the uh, Bell Atlantic, Verizon, Singular, AT&T. Keep changing the name. It's all <laughs> the same thing, service. but it's all the same. Yeah, people yeah. hate your name, change the name, uh, but don't make the service any better. <laughs> That's the, uh, the cynical uh, analysis of that move. So MobileMe, then known as .Mac, and previously iTools, uh, I'll pick email in particular. I put a whole bunch of links in the show notes of the reliability uh, of uh, .Mac and MobileMe email. It's downtime. I don't know if there's anyone ever graphed this, but uh, how many times you know, could you not get your mail from Apple's service? They had huge amounts of downtime. The links I put in, yeah. one of them was, was a story saying that it was the 15th recorded outage for the month of June. 
Can you imagine if Gmail went down 15 times in a single month? Uh, another link had uh, .Mac mail going offline for six hours. Uh, can you imagine not being able to get your email, email for six hours? I mean, That's if you're using work. it for, for personal, maybe. But if you're using this thing for like work and business, which a lot of people are and were god that's crushing and even if it's just your personal email like people just it's like a betrayal of the internet when you can't get or send email say you're some dude and you have one email address and you love Macs and you made a joe at mac.com and then for six hours you can't send or receive email it's like wait a second email is supposed to be like running water at the tap it's like when you turn on the tap and nothing comes out it's you know it's did a you failure ever, of civilization at that point did you ever do uucp I did not. I didn't. I wasn't online in those days. Yeah. See, I had a UUCP uh, gateway machine in in my house because I had an ISDN line, and it was tricky to get UUCP to work over TCP/IP in those days. But you could do it. And before that, I just had one that was over just a dial-up modem. So you kind of had this feeling back then that I could send emails, and then I would have to wait until you know at least an hour when. It was time for my gateway to call in, and, and the, the machine would pick up the phone and dial out and talk UUCP to the to the other gateway servers, send the send the uh, the email out, get whatever email was waiting, and bring it back in. And I would pop check the mail off my own server. And the weird thing was, I knew that that email that I just sent out, it would have to sit there for up to an hour, and then it would be another hour before I would know if somebody had even written me back. Yeah, that that was exposing the store and forward nature of email yeah. to you. You know that there was so, no abstraction behind it. But the idea of waiting six hours today, it seems unbelievable. Yeah. Well, by the time by the time regular people got email addresses, it, it was supposed to be like a utility, like your television or water or electricity. And you know, it was it was the type of thing where when it doesn't work, it, it seems like it's not fair. That this is always supposed to work. Right. That this is just an, an affront to the, the natural order of thing. And so for .Mac to be going down all that time, and, and they had worse things too. Another one of the worst things they had was that they used to do spam filtering, where they were trying to do, uh, you know, the best they could to get to deal with spam. But they would do it in a typical Apple fashion, all server side with no visibility to the user. So if they got it wrong and they filtered out one of your spam, one of your legitimate emails as spam, you just never saw it, and it would make you go crazy. Someone would say, "Hey, I emailed you," and you'd say, "Oh, I, did, I didn't get it." And, and again, another another betrayal of the internet. It's supposed you're supposed to email me. I'm supposed to get it. And when when you don't see that email, it's just maddening. And you know, experienced users who could figure out what was going on. Oh, we know that experienced users figured out they're doing server-side spam filtering, and this must have got caught in the spam filter. And do I have any knobs to turn on the spam filtering? Is there someplace I can look for that mail? No, it's just gone. And I remember people complained to Apple about it, and Apple's uh, you know responses from deep within the bowels of the company were more or less, "Well, we have to filter spam because you have no idea how much spam we get, and if we didn't filter it, it would just be untenable. And yeah, we're going to get it wrong sometimes, but oh well." And that's just that's not the attitude to have, you yeah. know. And, and Apple ways, we don't want to show you those knobs. We don't want to show you your spam bin. We don't want users to deal with that. That's all well and good, but if it's something where you can't get it one hundred percent right, you're breaking the contract of of, uh, of email. Um, and, and then the other thing on reliability is uh, .Mac homepage. I don't know if you remember that, but it was one of their first sort of web page building things. You would uh, upload your media and then use like a web interface to build. Pages, with yeah, very frustrating experience. 
they're like little templates and you could put your pictures in them and write captions. It was not a very good web app. But a lot of people, including a lot of people in my family, built websites on that just because as bad as it was, it was easier than anything they had tried before. This was before, you know, the advent of, of blogging software. It was, it was ubiquitous and you could really, you know, and it had integration with the Apple stuff. It had an easy way to get your stuff from your iPhoto library onto the thing. So they built whole sites of that. You know, every month they would be, here's the pictures of the kids. Here's what they did. Here's a little story about them. And they would fiddle with the web pages and do all their stuff or upload a little video of the new baby or whatever. And then Apple decided to phase it out. And I think it was December uh, of last year. And not only did they phase it out, but they made it so that if you had web pages up there, what was this is a quote from their thing, their uh, their little document on it. Web pages created using .match home, Mac homepage will still exist on the web, but only the HTML text and other content. Uh, and it says photos and movies will no longer be viewable. So that's great. So you're telling me the HTML will be there, the HTML pages, but if you go to them, they'll just be filled with broken images. Well, considering you're just mostly putting up photos and movies, that's sort of a non-starter. And this this is a reliability thing because you invested this time and energy into putting your data up there. You wrote little captions that were cute. You wrote little stories. You you uh, you know arranged the pictures. You picked which ones you wanted. You did everything. You spent all this time into it so everyone could see it. And the, the sort of the unspoken contract of online is once I put something up there, it stays there forever unless you know I take it down. Right. And Apple said, yeah, no, we're not going to host that anymore. Sorry. And they didn't give you any good options to, to get it, the stuff back. They're like, well, you know, they had these little, in, in the article I linked in the show notes, they said, well, here's how you can kind of extract the pictures and put them up in a different thing. But the pictures were lower quality versions in most cases than the, the ones that were in iPhoto because they were compressed JPEGs that were shrunken. Right. And so you'd have to either recompress them or like they, they didn't maintain the link with their, with their original source in iPhoto, even if you still had it. So you can't, you know, re-put those up with a new .Mac gallery or MobileMe gallery that lets you put up the full quality images. And if you if you pull down the small images, which are really small because this was a long time ago homepage and like it would make your images very, very tiny. They, they look positively minuscule on a 27-inch iMac, for example. And then you have to recompress them and put them up someplace else into templates that expected bigger pictures. It's just, there was no good way to do it. There wasn't even a good way. My sister was begging for this. She wanted some way to just print everything that was on there. Just print my entire homepage site print every single page of it on sheets of paper and color glossy paper and i could put it in a little scrapbook and say this is what i did during the first four years of my children's life and i printed it out and i have a paper copy and i'm comfortable with it fine you can get rid of it but they didn't have anything like that and so this is kind of a another betrayal of reliability where they're doing something that is outside the realm of what people expect out of online right. services and all these little things all these these reliability concerns in isolation each one of them can be explained away and you can excuse it but they build they build up and it builds a reputation for basically if you're going to do something online and you want to do it uh with a company that's trustworthy don't do it with apple because you'll get screwed eventually and especially people who have been uh, using the service for years and years we have that personal experience from it, but even if you don't, even if you ask about this, saying, hey, I'm thinking of setting up an email account, what should I use? They don't say, oh, you should definitely sign up for a mobile me account. Use that for your email. Everybody says Gmail at yeah. this point. Yeah. So or let me you- well, let me uh, let me throw this back at you for a minute, but without derailing. Actually, I have a question for you. And that is why? Why is this so bad? Okay. Or is that later? Do you want to answer that yeah, later? Yeah, we did, we did reliability. Uh, before we do performance, we can do a sponsor. Um, 
and then we can go on to the other topics at the very end. That's the last thing. Is that's a very last. So I'm just yeah. I just I want give drop a little hint. Let people know that 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 there's going to be a little nugget at the end, at the end of this sour rainbow. There there will be. I don't want I don't want to spoil. Wanna, it. I'll give you I'll give you the other categories. We just did reliability. After the sponsor, we'll do performance features and access. And then we'll do a little sidebar and ping, and then we'll do an explanation of what the problem is. So I think people are starting to think this is like the the lost of the podcast world, and then you'll continue to throw curveballs without providing any real tangible answers. It's a story, man. You got to listen from right. the beginning to the middle all to the right. end. All right. Yeah, I watched Lost all 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 the seasons, so I can stick with this. There you go. Should we do this? Should we do the sponsor now? Then. I think we should. All right. So listen, this is a new sponsor. I want everybody to, to check this out. I'm really excited about this one. It's it's Audible. So he, here's here's how this works. Audible ha, has over 85,000 titles, and basically every genre that exists out there. And uh, we, we've been talking to them about what we could do, and he, here's what we're going to do. They're going to give a free audio book and a 14-day trial to everybody who goes to audiblepodcast.com slash hypercritical. You go there. And you can get your free audiobook. And I love, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And besides besides podcasts, the only thing that I listen to anymore is is uh, is audiobooks. I don't I have, I don't even listen to music. I don't listen to anything else. This is it. It's great. You know what? I like to listen to this stuff. Believe it or not, I'll actually like when I have to go to the grocery store when I'm on a drive. That's the perfect time for me because I can kind of get in a zone. And I, that's what that's how I do it. Now, John, you were saying you listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm going to try and get you hooked on on audiobooks too. You need to expand into this. I'm just bad at reading in general. I don't not make enough time. I can barely listen to the amount of podcasts I get. But the the one thing I would definitely say to recommend uh, podcasts and audiobooks over music is that I find listening to somebody talk is more relaxing and less distracting than listen listening to music. For oh, example, I totally during the commute. Agree. So totally. that's why I'm listening to podcasts during my commute because just it's just, you know, better than music. You ha- I feel like I have to pick, like, make a playlist of songs. Because God knows you can't turn on the radio because it's just a wasteland. So, you know, I have my podcast all queued up, and I don't have to worry about figuring out what song I want or if I'm in the mood to hear this song. Because songs you listen to hundreds of times, but podcasts I listen to more or less only once. Uh, so I just listen. I pull out the new 5 by 5 podcast that I haven't heard. I put them in the order that I want to listen to them, and then they just play, and it's relaxing. Well, I do, uh, I do audio, that. Audio books can be the same way on a much longer trip. Yeah, I think you know? they can. I, do, I was going to say I do the same thing, but I, I mix into that. I'll mix in audio books because I really, I, especially, and not all of them work this way, but there are a lot of audio books on, on Audible that where the, the authors of the book will actually read them. It's not always the case, but it's always cool, especially if the author has a good reading, speaking voice. So it, audiblepodcast.com slash hypercritical, you get a free book. And, and here's, they said, you know what, why don't you guys recommend some books for listeners to get, get them started. So you don't have to get these, but these are the, these are the ones that I'm recommending. The, the one that I'm recommending is a book. It's by, uh, it's by Jay Elliott. It's called The Steve Jobs Way, I Leadership for a New Generation. And uh, this, is, this is a great book. I've been recommending this uh, for a little while now. I'm really enjoying it. It's read by Christopher Hurt, uh, written by Jay Elliott. And, and uh, it's, if, if you're in, this is a, he's a former senior VP of Apple. So you've got you've to check this out. This is a really great book. I'm really enjoying it. So that's my recommend. Did you have one? I know we're trying. We're trying to get you on board with the with the audio books, John. Do you have one I have to recommend? Book, I have a book recommendation. Now, first, first, I want to talk about the uh, the 
author reading the book, the reason I like it when an author reads the book is because it's insight into the author's mind. When you're reading the words on the page, you're not sure what they they what the person meant when they wrote them. Right. But when the author reads it, they give emphasis to you know that sometimes they get into it and start acting and stuff, but they give emphasis to words and <laughs> phrases and sequences that reveals more insight into what the author was thinking when they wrote the book, much more so than even if you do an interview with the author and you're like, well, tell me about your latest book. And they, you know, ramble on in a vague way about it. When they read it, you'll, you can tell like which part of the book they're most excited about, what, what the money scenes are, what the key phrases are. And I really like that. Unfortunately, sometimes authors have bad voices, which is why they have professionals. Do. Yeah. They got to get the professional in there. So what's yours? So my pick is, uh, something I did a podcast on last night, which hasn't been published yet, but it was uh, an episode of the incomparable and it's the name of the wind. Uh, it's part of apparently a three book series and it's a fantasy book and it's a fantasy book that people have been talking about for years and it finally bubbled up to my sphere of, uh, of influence because I'm not really into fantasy books anymore these days, although I was heavily when I was a kid, but this was, you know, everyone saying, even if you haven't read fantasy books in a while, this one is great. You got to read it. You got to read it. Uh, and so I did read it. And if you've listened to the podcast, I had many, many unkind things to say about this book. <laughs> and a lot of it has to do with the reasons why I am not a big fantasy book reader. But as we also talked about on the podcast, I read the thing straight through. Like, you know, it's, it's a page turner, as they say. And I'm reading the humongous 900-page sequel now. So obviously there's something good in this book that makes even someone like me who's sort of a lapsed fantasy book uh, aficionado interested in it. Uh, if you want to hear more details about the book, you should listen to the podcast. But I would just say that if you if you read fantasy books when you were a kid and you, you kind of like grew out of them or weren't into them or just got bored with them. If you want to ha- try a book to sort of get you back into the genre, give this one a try because it's, it's just off kilter enough that I think it will grab your interest and, uh, and suck you in. And if you're into fantasy books, apparently people who love fantasy books love this too. So okay. if this sounds like it's up your alley, give it a try. Well, we'll That's have links to, to John's pick and, and mine in the, uh, in the show notes. So you can get those and you can get your own free book at audiopodcast.com slash hypercritical. And that's also going to be in the show notes. All right. Is that okay? Audible podcast? That's good. Okay. We'll get you, we'll get you reading one. You're, we're going to get you reading them pretty soon here. It's hard. I guess it's hard enough for me to read books, audiobooks. I would have to cut into my podcast time. Ooh, don't say that. Maybe if you start recording less fewer podcasts, then I would have more time for... Audiobooks. You just need a longer commute. Yeah, all right. That's not what I need in my life. <laughs> all right, let's continue. Yes. So we did reliability. Uh, so number two about what makes an, a good online service, I'd say, is performance. And I'm putting that before a bunch of other issues just after reliability. Reliability is basically does it work, period. And performance is how fast does it work. And it sounds like a frill, but it's, it's not. Uh, and now what, before, I want, I'm going to want you to break this down into two things, John. One is perceived performance and the other is actual performance you're like it's like you're reading my mind ah i like this the very first the very second point i have also the first point i have is that sort of gmail changed the game for web apps Uh, web interfaces before gmail in general with a few exceptions were kind of like every time you did anything the page had to load it's not that gmail invented ajax or anything like that but gmail was the first high profile pervasively ajax throw out the old thing, you know, even though it did have the cruddy, still does, I think, the cruddy plain HTML interface, Gmail was clearly meant, designed in a, in a post-Ajax world. And that 
that just changed the perception of, of web applications entirely for the masses, even though there had been plenty of small applications that did exactly the same thing before that. Gmail was the first time that everybody saw, oh, oh, this you mean this is a web app? Hey, it's not so bad. Uh, and, and the Gmail thing, the other thing that did it was that it didn't ape any sort of desktop applications UI. It played to the strengths of the web. So it didn't care, you know, how Apple Mail or, or Eudora or Outlook worked. He said, no, this is how, this is how email is going to work for us. And Gmail was going to be its own thing. And we we're right. going to rethink the interface from, you know, from the ground up, from the lack of folders and the introduction of labels and, and doing everything in terms of conversations and just the big linear list of stuff. And it was very different from a desktop application. Now, the second point I have here is perception of speed versus actual speed. That's the key because there was always going to be that round trip to the server and that delay. It was never going to be as fast as local in, in most cases. But as long as you make it feel fast, as long as the interface feels responsive, as long as you're never waiting for a whole page to load and things seem to happen, you know, it, the interface isn't blocked when you've selected an action. You can always select a different action. And most common things are very fast. Gmail did a really good job on that. Uh, now, contrast that to Apple's online web thing. So now back in the day, Apple had the, you know, you have to reload the whole web page to do anything. So the, the homepage builder was kind of like that. There wasn't much Ajax, but you can't really blame them because that was pre-Ajax. But post-Ajax, Apple took that technology and used it to make their applications feel like the desktop version. So if you look, for example, to mobile memes and mail interface today, it looks kind of like the Apple mail interface. And it's all Ajaxy and it does everything asynchronously and you don't have to reload the page and stuff like that. But it still feels fast, uh, slower than the equivalent desktop application. They didn't, you know, define their own interface. They didn't do what Gmail did and say, "We've got a new set of rules. This is a new interface." It's, there's, not, there's no basis of comparison for Gmail because there's no desktop application that ever worked like Gmail. Gmail worked like Gmail, and Apple Mail works like Apple Mail. Right. Well, Mobile Me works like Apple Mail, and it's not as fast. I mean, if you take the little scroll thumb and scroll it in, in the Mobile Me Mail thing, you get that little spinning cursor and the thing is empty and it says loading and you're waiting for something now gmail makes you wait too but when you the expectations of a desktop application is when i grab the scroll thumb and yank it down i see stuff that's lower down i don't see a big spinning weight cursor in a blank screen and that perception is you know hammered in by years and years of desktop experience whereas on the gmail side i have no expectation of what's going to happen when i click on a label right and it changes you know it's not they don't look like folders. If they had put a folder icon back to it and made it like an active selection, like a source list, when I clicked on it and it highlighted, I'd be like, "Why isn't the right pane updated?" Yeah, Every yeah. I mean, they gave you basically a new, uh, a new language to speak when using their app. Yeah, and you didn't have this unfavorable basis of comparison where their application was always going to be found wanting. They just went off in a different direction. But Apple has taken all this technology and built what seems to be a pretty credible, you know, nice clone of a desktop application. But it's always going to be, it's always going to pale in comparison to a real one. And so it feels slower than it really is. And I think it actually is slower than, than Gmail for reasons we'll get to in a, in a later point. And then I'm going to make a little sidebar, get off the mail thing to go to iDisk. Oh my God, talk about slow. iDisk is the, the ultimate multi-year long. Has it been a decade yet? It's been a long time where iDisk is synonymous with slow. Is there if there's a slower way to access your files from a server somewhere? I don't think I've ever experienced it. It was, it would block the entire application for a long time. Everything took forever. Lots of spinning weight cursors. 
uh, back in the day, it was like, well, it's because they built iDisk on top of synchronous file system APIs. So when, in Unix, when you make like a read system call and, and it goes down through the layers to the file system API, you know, it's synchronous. The, the application can't do anything else while it's waiting for that read. But they seem to have uh, overcome that a little bit. But it still boggles my mind that using iDisk in the Finder is still slower than using WebDAV to hit that very same iDisk in pretty much any third-party application. So if you have like Interarchy or, or Transmit or something like that and you open up your iDisk and navigate it, it's still faster to do that than it is to navigate your iDisk in the Finder. I don't even know why anymore at this point. I don't even care. Uh, and, and they did that, they did that uh, local disk thing where you could have a whole disk image locally and it would try to sync them. And syncing is not really Apple strength either. Yeah, that was, the, that was but, the worst. It would put this giant disk image on your computer. It was just it was they were trying to band-aid it and they kind of made it worse. And the bottom line is that Dropbox drop kicks iDisk to the curb. Yeah. And it's like, let's not even let's not let's not even talk about iDisk anymore. Because and Dropbox shows that like some little company with a couple of dudes in it made what iDisk should have been for a decade. And it's like, well, here it is. Yeah, Apple, you're a multi-billion dollar corporation with like more profit in five minutes than we'll have in the entire year. And you couldn't do this, and we just did, and here it is. I don't want to go into like whether or not Apple should buy Dropbox or anything like that. Just the bottom line is iDisk bad, Dropbox good. Apple big corporation, lots of money, Dropbox small. So there's, there's a problem here. It's a major, major failure. But do you um, think it, and I, really, I know we're kind of jumping ahead, John, but I mean, do you think that that's the mentality, the big company versus small company mentality no, at work there? That's not it. Okay. You've that's got not it. There. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give them that All excuse. Right. All right. Uh, yeah. So, so performance. It's just killing Apple. And, and again, if you're going to do anything online, you, if it feels slow, it doesn't, you know, how does it affect your work? Well, I had to wait an extra two seconds to get my file. It just makes you not want to use it. It makes it unpleasant. Um, and that's why I think performance, that, it's kind of like the same way iOS is so pleasant to use because it's so responsive and they focus so heavily on performance. They just don't have that religion when it comes to server-side stuff. And it's just as important there, if not more important, because... You know, you're you're farther away from the thing you're interacting with. It's not you know, it's not running on a CPU right in front of you. It's on a server somewhere, and there's latency, and you have to send things over a wire and wait for a response. And they're just not prioritizing it correctly. So the next item is features. It's the third item in the list: reliability, performance. Then finally, you get to features. Finally, you get to like the stuff that Apple feels like it can compete on. Uh, but the problem with that is that. Features in the online game are different than features in the desktop game. So Gmail is a good example. If you look at what Gmail can do, it's kind of like a an octopus that will put its tentacles into every part of your life. Gmail will pull email from other services, including competing services. You can send email out through those other services so they look like they legitimately came from those other things. There are extensions and those lab things where you can add lots of interesting features and mix and match and change themes and just customize it. It does pop and IMAP. It has server-side filters. Features, Gmail features have just been coming fast and heavy since the very beginning. And they don't limit themselves to features that fit within our worldview. If somebody wants it, if, if, you know, if someone somewhere thinks this is a useful feature, they throw it in there. So you can make Gmail your home for email on the web. And I, most people I know have done that simply because it integrates with every other service. You can just work in Gmail and make it look like you have 15 different email accounts. But see them all in Gmail and send out through them all in Gmail and get them in any desktop application you want and have everything synchronized. Right. Those type of features, Apple is so far behind in its mail client for doing that. Like Apple has tiny little feelers into maybe pulling in mail from other things, and they do pop an IMAP, but they don't want to you know, 
they don't want, they wouldn't do something like extensions because they said well, we define the interface for Apple Mail and for the, the web mail and we don't want you messing with it. We don't want you putting an ugly picture of clouds in the background that changes based on the weather, stuff like that. Uh, server-side filters is a philosophical difference between the two things where Apple says, well, we have a rules in our you know, Apple Mail application, but when you're doing it from the server, that's like, when you're doing it through the web interface, that's just like a temporary, I just want to check my mail on the web, but you'll go back and do it on your real uh, mail client later. Whereas Gmail says, no, Gmail is the one true interface to mail, and if there are going to be mail filtering rules, they're going to be in Gmail, and Gmail right. lives on a server. Uh, the, all those things, all those features mean that Gmail is basically beating Apple in the market in the checkbox war. And the checkbox war doesn't seem like it's that important. Apple doesn't participate in it in terms of its hardware products and its software. But for online services, if you want to win and get the people to use yours as your, as your primary uh, email address or your, you know, your primary disk storage thing like Dropbox, Apple's going to lose every time against the guys who are more flexible. And that's why everyone uses Gmail and Dropbox instead of uh, .Mac, email, and, uh, and iDisk. And it's one instance where Apple's, we don't compete on features, we compete on like feel and everything like that. It, it doesn't make a difference in online. You have to compete on features. Um, and, and especially in, in the, the sort of those Borg type ways where you absorb other stuff into it. Because I had so many different email accounts at different places, including my .Mac one. And Gmail was the one that was promiscuous enough to be willing to absorb the other ones. So now my .Mac email gets funneled through Gmail and so does my, you know, all my other email accounts. And that becomes my home because it, was, it wasn't so picky about, oh, we don't associate with those other services. We really prefer that you just not use those other services and come use us. It, Gmail recognizes that you're going to have a lot of email addresses and identities, and it will, it will do anything. It will do what it takes <laughs> to get your business. What is it going to take to get you into a Gmail today? It'll do it. <laughs> so right. the final one is, is access. Uh, and this is kind of underlying the whole thing i have been paying enough attention to the chat room but i bet people are already screaming about this in terms of why well you know of course gmail uh, of course apple mobile me doesn't have as many customers and uh, of course they have all these uh, limitations versus the other guys because they charge money for it they're not it's not a free service unlike all the other ones that we've been talking about you can't get in on dot mac or mobile me without paying money it's a hundred bucks a year it has been forever and that right away right out the gate limits you to the number of, of people you're going to have. And if that Mac was like really awesome, paying for it can make people feel more secure. Because you'd be like, well, you're using that free thing, but at any right. second they could stop you because you're not paying them money, but I pay for my service and I feel more secure with it. Well, and that was, that was one of the very big things about the first generation of what we'll call webmail services, whether it was Hotmail or whoever, was, oh, well, that's free. It could go away. It could break. It could, you know, and they're not going to help you. They're not going to care. And people would pick Apple services for that reason. Well, I know I'm I'm paying for this, so it's gonna be good. Yeah, right? and if Apple was if Apple was great at all the other things I just listed, reliability, performance features, if Apple did a good job on those, paying for it would make you feel more secure. But they're not the best at in those things. So I think paying for it makes you feel less secure because then you start getting getting into the negative side of paying for things. And here's two aspects of the negative side. One is that when something like homepage being uh, retired comes in, you, you feel even more betrayed. It's like, wait a second, what, what have I been paying all this money for if not to ensure the longevity of these, you know, of the first three years of my kid's life that I put up on the web and you're telling me it's going to go away? Why am I even paying for this? If I wanted someone to just dump my data, 
I would have taken one of the free services because I kind of expect that from them because, hey, I never paid them any money. You get what you pay for. I've been paying $100 a year and you do this. So it, it, you know, it reverses itself on Apple. It becomes a detriment. And the other one is that you're always one missed bill away from losing everything. Like that's not really true. Apple has grace periods and they'll preserve your stuff and you can keep your name if you miss a bill and renew and do all this stuff. But there's the perception that since you're paying for it, if you stop paying for it, then everything is gone. And then you, then you feel trapped by like, well, I've got all this stuff on this service, but I hate the service. I really don't want to use it anymore, but, but I've got it because if I stop paying for it, then all my stuff is gone. And, and that makes people feel bitter about having paid for it. It's like, oh, they trapped me because I, I paid all this money and now I have to pay them forever if I want my yeah. stuff to. All the negative, because they're bad at all those other things, all the negative aspects of paying come out. And I'm not going to say that paying for it is bad. I think paying for it could have been a huge, huge plus if they were good at it. But since they're bad at it, paying for it becomes a negative. It, it flips over to the other side. Uh, I'm going to do a little sidebar on ping. So we've mostly just been talking about mobile me. Does anyone remember ping? How long ago was that? It seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? It really wasn't, but yeah, it really seems like ages ago. And I, I did you try it? Did you sign, you know, sign up for it and try it out? I did. I, tr- I tried to try it. <laughs> was I successful at trying it? I, I tried to do whatever it is they wanted me to do with ping, but I just feel like ping was DOA. Yeah, it really was. Maybe it, maybe it took two days to realize that. Yeah. Three days. <laughs> I'll, I'll be like, honest with you, John. I I don't really think of myself as an Apple fanboy, although I probably probably am. I mean, I'm I'm rational enough to see that I probably am. Like it's like when you 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 kind of get the idea you have a problem, and everyone tells you you have the problem. You kind of start to believe them. I I can see that. So it, it at least at least what I would say is that I'm I'm always I want Apple to be successful because I really like the stuff that Apple makes and that that's the way that I see it. And then when they do something like this it 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 wasn't so much like I don't think anybody was surprised that Ping was sort of as you say is sort of DOA. But it, it it's almost the kind of thing like with mobileme.mac I really want Apple to do it right. I really want them to get it right. I really want them to buy Dropbox and and or or do whatever it takes to make Dropbox just always there on every Mac that I ever use or give to my family member or anything any any just make it part of the OS whether you buy them or license it I don't care just get it in there make it part of it that that makes sense to me mobile me having a service like that and doing it right makes sense to me and I I would rather pay Apple or use app something Apple built than something that uh, that Google built uh, not because I don't like Google but because the integration is usually better when you are are sticking on the Apple side of things. Usually, I don't. I have. I use Google Apps. I use tons of stuff on Google. I don't dislike them at all. And I've had. I had an Android phone for the better part of a year, and I, I was somewhat content with that. I have no problem with Google. So uh, here's the thing, John. When I looked at Ping, the first question I I thought, why is Apple doing this? I get why they would do Mobile Me. Why would they do Ping? I think there are a lot of reasons for them to have done ping from like a synergy perspective. I'm doing the air quotes now. Yeah. Uh, in terms of helping to make it more fun to buy things in iTunes or to buy music. You know, the, the social aspect of music, there's a lot of companies making money off that. But of all the things that we just listed, all those different categories, if I had to pick one category that killed ping, uh, and it only, I think it only really takes one thing to kill ping. It wasn't reliability because I, it, 
for the time that it was there. It's still there, I guess. It worked fine. It wasn't like down. Performance seemed to be okay compared to you know other online things. It wasn't really intensive in terms of data volume. Features kind of fell down there, but like a version one, you always expect to not have a lot of features. But access is the reason that ping cratered. And access starts from the the basic interaction with ping and in that it was only in iTunes. You don't make an online service that you can't use in a web browser in 2010. You just don't. Game over. Anything you can only do in iTunes is not an online service. The store works only in iTunes because they control the store. It's the only way to get to the iTunes store. That's the way they want to do it. Fine, I'll buy stuff there. And hey, that's where the media is going anyway. But ping is supposed to be a social thing. And if I can only use a social thing from iTunes, forget it. It's dead. Um, and, and the other thing was they tied it so heavily to iTunes. Again, it's their unwillingness to be promiscuous. Only the songs you bought in iTunes participated in this you know, world of sharing of right. what you bought. You, you have tons and tons of music that people have never heard of that's not on the iTunes store, and you want to like share it and talk about it. Lots of services let you do that, like, a, I don't know, a Last FM and, and a few other things like that where – what's that other one? There's another one I'm forgetting the name of – where they will go to great lengths to – catalog and add metadata for and figure out all this obscure music that people have because they're not trying to sell you the music they just they know that you want to share your taste and if you like some weird you know drum only band from africa that no one's ever heard of that has never released anything except for on the internet and you have a track of that you want to share that with people and you want to annotate it with the metadata and maybe the seven other people who are into that band will do it yeah, too and you can just share your appreciation it, for music they're doing it the way that they did it i mean i like i understand that they wanted to play in this but this is the thing that surprised me so much about ping is that usually look at look at the way that that apple launches a product a physical, tangible product. I mean, look at the MacBook Air recently, the the iPhone 4, the iPad 2, all of these things. They they create something, I don't want to call it flawless, but they create something that's awesome. And when there are flaws, they do a really good job of downplaying them. And usually what the flaws that are there are not they're not they're not killer flaws, right? They're not things that are like, oh, well, that product is no good. But then whenever they launch an online service like this, it it really doesn't match. It really doesn't. You can't say that about it. You can't say that there aren't usually and the flaws are usually showstoppers in some cases. I mean, even with Game Center, the way that when people add you and you keep getting notifications, things like that, that maybe they address, but there there are issues there that are potentially show-stopping issues. And, and Ping was just so not usable. It was not friendly. It was not fun to use it. it. It revealed information you didn't want. If you hid the information, you'd get thousands of emails of people asking for your, you know, you'd be their friend. I mean, it was just, it was, it did so many things wrong. And it's like, how can Apple, who does such a great job building these amazing devices that we'd love to use, so not get it with a service like this? They had that Facebook integration that reportedly fell through at the last moment. But, yeah. you know, that, I wouldn't use it as an excuse because Apple's supposed to be the company that kills these things. If it doesn't That's live right. up to expectations, you kill it. You're like, all right, well, it didn't work out. We couldn't do the deal with Facebook. And without that deal with Facebook, there's no way this is going to fly because presumably Facebook would have been the web face of, uh, of this service. So they should have killed it. But they launched it anyway, and it was, it was a ghost town. Uh, and I think it still is a ghost town. So there's a couple that, people that was in, my, in the chat who, are, who, who loved it. I guess you could, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to go too far down the ping hole. Let's just say right. that the consensus is that it hasn't been a successful service. I think that's safe to say. Now, are we ready to start talking about why? 
Yeah. So before we do, let's thank our second sponsor. Then, what do you think about that? Go for it. Are you re- you ready for this? It's SourceBits.com. They provide software design and development services for iOS, Android, Mac. They also do web stuff. I bet they know how to sync stuff up. SourceBits is at the bleeding edge of emerging technologies. Their deep experience and successful track record ensures that your idea will be transformed into a functional, well-tested, visually stunning, world-class app in no time. They have to know how to do this. And I've been saying this. That these guys, they really know what they're doing. This is, this is a full stack software development house it's not a couple high school kids with a you know with a with an iphone these guys this is the real deal and uh they they will save you a lot of time and money and, and they'll get it done right so if you have an idea for an app you call them sourcebits.com cutting edge app development please go check them out and let them know we sent you all right john let's hear it okay let's do it so what's the answer after having said all this what is it that apple doesn't understand about online yeah. Why? Why can they not get this? Uh, there are probably a lot of things they don't understand about Lime, but I picked a few. Uh, the first thing that strikes me is that all the things that make Apple's hardware and and applications and software great make its online efforts bad. So, because they're so good at doing you know the hardware device and and desktop application thing, their inclination is to sort of copy those interfaces online. And they just don't translate. It's a different. It's a different thing. Don't make your online email application look like your desktop one. No matter how awesome you think your desktop one or your iOS one or your anything, you know, don't make your online calendar look like the iPad calendar app. They're different things. Uh, and even though that's your strength, even though you have awesome artists who can make everything look beautiful down to the pixel, online is different. Um, and the vertical integration, where they say, "Well, we make the hardware, the software, the whole stack." Online, you can't do the whole stack. You don't. You're not an ISP. You don't control the wires. You don't control stuff on the users. Uh, you know, uh, on the users' end of things. You don't control how they're going to look at your your product. You can't make it iOS only for your web application or anything like that. You can't make people use your iTunes application to use your social network. You just can't do that vertical integration. It's a minus, not a plus, in online. Uh, and, and online, by its nature, is about openness and sharing. So Apple can't have total control of everything. This goes against their very nature. They, they, they don't want openness and sharing. They don't want to touch or interact with or deal with other services like Gmail does, sucking in all the email and everything like that, because now they're relying on uh, other parties. Like, well, what if they change their API? We have to keep chasing their API around. And we have, it's, just, it's hard to cooperate with other people because that means you're relying on other people. And Apple seems constitutionally incapable of entering into agreements where they rely on a third party. And we had lots of other shows about this same issue they just feel that they can't trust other people but online you have to it's all about integration apis it's all about when that guy changes their api you change yours you cooperate you make deals we participate in an open relationship and that underlies everything that has to do with online and apple doesn't work like that uh they're they're for pay business model apple wants you to pay money for everything that's their business that's why they have a bazillion dollars because they don't give away stuff for free you we make cool things you want them you pay us money but in the online world and online services, the for pay business model is really hard. Majority of ones out there are free. And you could say the free, the free ones are bad. Then, then they're, you know, if, if you're not paying for a product, then you are the product because they're just selling you to advertisers. This is all true and people don't like it. But the bottom line is that online, no one has really figured out the for pay business model with the exception of small things to businesses like 37 signals and stuff like that. All the big email things are free. All of the, you know, big photo sharing sites are free. Facebook is free. You know, 
you can complain about the model all you want, but the bottom line is that Apple hasn't figured it out either. So if you're going to do for pay and you're not going to do it any better than anybody else, you're going to be limited. Like just look at the New York Times paywall thing that they're trying to do. Even the New York Times is trying to figure out how do we get people to pay for things online. Yeah. Who knows how they're going to do? Everyone's trying to crack this nut, but Apple hasn't cracked it either, and it's really hurting them. And they just, you know, people keep this is rumors about mobile me being free. I don't know if that solves any problems or anything, but it being for pay for such a long time has hurt Apple in many different ways, especially since it's been such a bad service. Uh, and the final thing is that online services are server-centric. Apple is not like that. Apple is device-centric. The data is here, and we may synchronize it through a waypoint on the internet back down to some other device, but the devices are canonical, and they synchronize with each other through a middleman instead of the server being canonical, and the devices are just local incarnations of that data briefly. Um, and and this, to, to flip this around, I'm going to pick Google as the leader in, in the online service space. I don't think that's a controversial choice. And I say, what what does Google understand about this that Apple doesn't, to, to turn it around on them? I think Google's greatest strength, actually, I'm going to ask you this because I always wonder what people say. What, what do you think Google's greatest strength as a company is in this realm of online stuff? Boy, that's a tough one. I mean, I think it's, it's clearly not user interface design. That's good. You eliminated one. Uh, maybe it'd be easier to eliminate them than to in order to identify it. I, honestly, I really I think I think what they understand and what they do very well is provide the kind of services that people want to use. They don't waste a lot of time, and and maybe waste is the wrong word, but they don't waste a lot of time trying to uh, create unique experiences. They just provide tons and tons of services that generally meet with most of the criteria that you identified at the top of the show. They generally tend to, I mean, sure, everything's going to have downtime, but generally they, they tend to be fairly reliable. They tend to be very accessible. They, they tend to be either free or very affordable. And uh, they, they really meet those, that criteria that you, that you identified. I should add this to the topic list, a show on everything that's wrong with Google, because I have a lot to say about what's wrong with Google, and there is a lot. Let's but, do that. But uh, but this particular thing, Apple, uh, Google's greatest what do you strength think it is? is you were nibbling at the edges of it. But I, I, maybe you have to. I'm surprised you didn't get this because you worked in this area before. But I think Google's greatest strength is operations. In terms of uh, everyone has a different word for this, but the service they operate and the infrastructure. Mm. Uh, and this is general, generally speaking, you're talking about their infrastructure, the way that they have their data centers running, the way every machine has yeah. its own internal UPS, the way that machines are all you know, replaceable the, with one another. and From the micro level all the way up to the big, big level. Yeah. And, and coming at this with Apple, like Apple and the enterprise, we already went over a little bit about why they But do you think that's what, is that what makes Google successful? Well, yeah. So let me, let me, let me just finish this. It'll be quick. This will be the last, second to last bit here. So we know why Apple doesn't work well with the enterprise. They ditch the XServe. They don't like announcing their schedules ahead of time. They don't like supporting the enterprise. The thing the enterprise values is like price performance. They don't care about elegance. And Apple just doesn't work uh, with that. And in the enterprise, when Apple has to do enterprise stuff, right? It has to have servers and things like that. And Apple can't use its own hardware and software to do that stuff anymore now that it's ditching the XServe, certainly. But even before, a bunch of one U XServes, Apple is not running its entire business on that. They have to use products from other vendors, other vendors who, who are willing to go into that dirty realm of faceless servers that are ugly and disgusting and commodity hardware and stuff that you expect to break and stuff like that. Apple has to use that to run its business, just like every other business, but it doesn't make that stuff. So it's kind of like, oh, you know, there's that other thing. Uh, 
I imagine managers at Apple who are in charge of these divisions, they just want this stuff to work. They don't care about like, are you using Sun, are you using Linux servers? What are you using to, to route the mail, to store the mail? Are you using EMC storage? Are you making, you know, they don't want to be bothered with details. Just make it work. Just make it work fast. I don't care about it because it's not Apple technology. It's not like the other say, in the cases where they say, well, I don't care what you do with that phone. Just make it a cool phone. No, that's their bread and butter. We make phones. That's what we do as a company. As Apple, as a company says, it doesn't say we make awesome servers and we run data centers. They don't do that at all. So they don't, they don't even want to know about it. Just make it work. It's, it's just not their strength. But flip, on the flip side, Google, that's what the company Google is all about. This is their core competency, I think, beyond like search and advertising and what they make their money on and stuff like that. The core co- competency of Google is operations, data center operations. And it shows Google has built this massive general purpose infrastructure they run their whole company on, MapReduce, GFS, Bigtable. Those services were not easy to make, cost a lot of money, took a lot of time, a lot of really smart people, and they made them general purpose so they can run their entire business on, the, on those things. Every kind of product they have, from the duds like Google Wave that sucks to the great things like Gmail is awesome, all built on the same common infrastructure of services. And they, and they improve those infrastructure, and they, they revise it. They do what Apple does with its consumer products, where Apple comes out with one iPod, and they make it better, and they make it smaller, and they have multiple models, and they make the version 2, and they make the version 3, and it just gets better and better and races ahead of everybody. Google has done that. Not, I guess you could say it's done it with search or Gmail and stuff like that, but they do it with their infrastructure, most importantly. GFS version 2, Bigtable didn't exist back then. You know, MapReduce has been revised. They've got over 150 different uh, versions of how they do the data centers. And the reason you know this is Google's core competency uh, is that they don't tell you anything about it. They don't talk about it. They do white papers on these things. They do white papers on MapReduce and GFS and Bigtable. But when it comes to, like, revealing their secrets, they won't tell you how their data center works. They won't tell you details on how they deal with hardware failures and how they arrange their infrastructure and geographically distributing data centers and stuff like that. They'd give you vague terms, enough for them to brag, but that is their, you know, that and their search algorithms are their secret, and they won't tell you that the same way Apple won't tell you how it makes, you know, iOS or makes its great applications. And this is the biggest difference between Apple and Google, and I think is Google's biggest strength, because Google's going to make dud products, like I just mentioned, Wave and Orkut and God knows what else they're doing, and they're going to make good products, but they're all going to be built on a big, solid foundation. The same way Apple's going to make good applications and bad, but they're all going to be built on a solid foundation of Apple understands hardware and software integration, user interface design, all that stuff. And this is, I think, the big sort of schism between the two companies, and the biggest schism between Google and anyone else, because other companies, even if they're in this business, don't consider that data center operations, general purpose infrastructure stuff to be like the most important thing they do. And mm. Google, with its money, with its time, with its effort, with its manpower, has shown that products come and go, but the infrastructure is what you build your company on. And they, they continue to build and revise their infrastructure to be ready for any product that anyone comes up with uh, to support it, to have those things we talk about, reliability, performance, access, everything. Well, I, uh, think, I, think, I think it's time to invoke... Godwin's law or Godwin's law of these shows, which is the North Carolina Apple data center. I get depressed when I think about that because it's like, it's like giving a, you know, a machine gun to a baby. Yeah. <laughs> You've I got mean, this big data center, Apple. What do you know, Apple, about running big data centers? They can say, well, we run, you know, the biggest music store in the world yeah. and we do this. And we, it's just a different category of stuff. Uh, the, the store business is a lot of it is, is read only data distributed on CDNs. It's very different than running an interactive web application. And they have nowhere near the infrastructure expertise and systems to support generic applications that Google does. So how they do they have, get it? Oh, the first thing they have to do is figure out that this is, this is their problem. Mm. That 
they don't they they don't have this as a core competency. Maybe you can't be good at both. I, my, my last little bit here is the, the the heading is Paradise Lost. And if you think back to five years ago, six years ago, before the iPhone, certainly you know maybe even before the iPod or around that time, the dream, the, the tech nerd dream was we're going to have Apple hardware and software and Google online services. Remember when they, they had Eric Schmidt on the board and when yeah. he first joined the board, it's like, boy, this is a great relationship because Apple makes the best right. uh, you know, consumer devices and they make awesome software and I love their apps and everything and I love their OS. And Google, Google has that great search and they do great online stuff. The two of these guys together, it would be synergy. Uh, but instead, what has actually happened is that both of the businesses have sort of aggressively expanded into each other's turf. And now we have a situation where Apple sucks at Google's business. Apple can't do servers, operations, or anything like that. And Google sucks at Apple's business. Google can't do user interfaces, consumer hardware, software, UI, all that stuff. Now, let's roll back, let's go roll back the clock a little bit and say, let's say Google never did Android, never did Android, and they never stepped into that space at all, and Eric was still on the board. Why wouldn't Apple just say, you know what, the Google guys really do understand operations. They really do understand, you know, John Syracuse's three rules for success. Uh, we're just going to do everything we can do to integrate with these great services. And, and you know, we know Google's going to be around. So we're just going to fully integrate. We're going to fully embrace. I mean, you see little hints of that. You, you know, iCal kind of integrates with Google Calendar and address book weirdly integrates with Google contacts. I mean, you know, iPhone kind of supports some of the, the Gmail stuff. So they could be a lot better there. And clearly those are very straightforward, solvable problems that doesn't take a cultural change at Apple. Those are things that just, oh, well, we'll, we'll support the API really well. And Apple's good at doing that. Do you think well, that that's, the, is that what's stopping it? Is that why they're not embracing it? Or is it is it the whole thing that happened with Microsoft where they said, never again will we be tied to another external company that we, we can't control? I, I think it's just that the, the, the philosophy of independence, of not relying on outsiders that has served them so very well in all other aspects of their business, they can't, they can't break from for this other aspect. They're saying, well, it's worked out great for everything else we've ever done. Why shouldn't it also work out great in online? Maybe it's difficult to have a company where you're of two minds about something where in this realm we have to cooperate and be open or we have to rely on Google. Like if they're going to rely on Google to the extent that I don't think, you know, Apple didn't even like relying on Google for maps for the phone. They said, we got to get our own map company. Let's buy that map company. Let's get their map data. We got to get off Google map. But they don't like relying on Google for search. We got to do this thing with Bing to try to keep Google on its toes. They don't like relying on outsiders. But in an online world and online services, you absolutely have to not just rely on, but like it's, it's a relationship. It's a hundred percent integration. No one with the exception possibly of Facebook, which I hate by the way, and that could be another show. No one is an Island. You have to integrate with other people. You have to cooperate. And yes, that means that you rely on them, but then they rely on you too. It becomes a symbiotic relationship. You can't go it alone. And it's kind of, it's horrible that we had the situation where we had Google who was great in online and Apple that was great at consumer electronics and UI and it seems like you guys just get together. You can, you know, work together. But I, you know, they didn't. They instead they decided they each wanted to do everything, and they each do each other's business badly. Uh, maybe it's the case that if one of them had gotten bigger than the other, and they had bought each other, like Apple buys Google or Google buys Apple back in the day, you'd say, well, finally, it's the best of both worlds. It's chocolate and peanut butter. We we got everything we need in one company. But it seems like maybe the philosophy of one company or the other 
would come to dominate the other. So if it was Google buying Apple, eventually the vertical integration and attention to user interface detail and everything would disappear because Google's philosophy that serves them well online would overwhelm the philosophy that serves Apple well in its realm, or vice versa, that Apple would buy Google and then try to Appleify it and say, yeah, well, Google's not going to be a good net citizen anymore because we want to be our own. We want to control everything. We don't want to rely on anybody else. So it's just a bad situation. I think the solution is either the easy solutions are stick to what you're good at. And if that's too pessimistic, you say, well, if we stick to what we're good at, we would never grow. Growth means becoming good at other things. Well, if you want to become good at other things, then you have to figure out some way to have two ideas in your mind at the same time within you know the, the fictional uh, brain of the company. Do what's best for your consumer products and your user interfaces and your desktop stuff here. But when it comes to online, do like Google does, more or less. Uh, and you can't you can't have one philosophy for the whole company because the businesses are just too different. Uh, there's a couple things that scroll by in the chat room that I want to address before we wrap this up. Okay. Uh, where was one of them? So some someone was saying that uh, I, I said that Google's cruddy at consumer electronics and stuff, and someone mentioned that their uh, Google is actually doing better in the phone realm, phone realm in terms of social and syncing. And I would agree because that's the intersection between. Uh, you know, the consumer device and the OS, which Apple does really well. But once you start getting into the realm of synchronizing contacts or having uh, interfaces with other network services, Google does that better. Or for Palm, for that matter. Palm, you turn on the Palm phone, you enter your information, it will suck down everything from every other service and integrate it into a unified inbox and, and the server is canonical and all that stuff. As soon as, even in the Apple's devices that are awesome, as soon as you touch the online realm, other companies' superior philosophy serves them better there and gives a better experience to the user or like people love the google phones where you get a new google phone you just type in your your google id and password and boom everything you want is there and that's a demo that i think apple would love to give but give but they don't understand to make that happen you have to be like google in that realm yeah some of the people or, in the chat room were, they, they were saying john that, that well you know what does what doesn't work with uh, the ios integration what, what's not what's broken for you what's and i, I didn't didn't mean to imply that it, it, it doesn't work. It just, again, I used an Android phone for a long time. And you, you give it your username and password and everything is there. And it, yeah, sure, maybe you don't want everything to be there, but you can turn things off. But it, it, the integration is seamless and it's, it's across all apps. It's across the whole OS. And again, yeah, I mean, it, that might be more than Apple would want to do. And they've, they've done a good job of making things integrate, but they really, they really could do more, I feel like. And I, I really wish there was a world where Google never started stepping on Apple stuff and vice versa because I think the two of them together, just content uh, at what they were doing, would, would have been better for us as consumers. All right. Maybe it wouldn't have been better. Maybe they would have just competed on something else. But it's clear where each company's strengths and weaknesses are, and it's a shame that they both want to do a full stack. Uh, they just want to be uh, they want to do everything themselves. It's it's an advantage to Apple mostly at this point because you can take your Apple phone and connect to Google's services with it. Even if you're just using Safari, like my email application on my iPod Touch, I use Safari with the Gmail interface. I don't use Apple's Mail app because I find the web for as, as cruddy as it is. I find the web app interface to Gmail superior to trying to do IMAP or POP to my gigantic email, which just has crushed many a desktop email client. How gigantic the, is it? I don't think it's even that big. It's only a couple of gigabytes, but I get a lot of I get a lot of mail because I'm a lot on a lot of mailing lists and I have a lot of labels. And you just I need full access to the Gmail interface to deal with that. And if it has to download all those messages, I'll be waiting around forever for it to download. Whereas Gmail just shows me the screen 
and you know the servers already got them. It just sent me the summaries. I didn't have to wait for the entire messages to be downloaded locally. I don't know. It's whatever the problem is. I have not found a desktop application, mail application that can handle my volume of email and my IMAP and all my labels uh, with Gmail yeah. as successfully as just using the web interface. See, for me, I'm I'm so sensitive to a bad user experience that Gmail is completely unusable for me. I, I never use it. I, I mean, to me, if I, if mail app, I mean, that's not the best app either. I like it, but it's, it's not the most amazing app either, but it's so far and above better of a user experience for me. I probably don't get as much. I get, I get a lot of mail, but probably it sounds like you get even more. I still use it, and even if it's slower, I'd rather have it be slower and and work the way it works than have to use the Gmail. And and for me, it's so bad that like if if Mail app stops responding for some reason once in a while, you know, their I'm I'm app gateway is offline or something, I just won't check Mail. I won't. I would. I never it never even occurs to me to use the Gmail interface. It's so bad. Like for me, that would be like I'm stranded at an airport, and the only way I can send an email is to use the Gmail interface. Like, then I might might use it. You you might be converted, yeah, because I used to be you. I, I was the hardcore uh, desktop email client user. I was Claris Email or, was my first love, and then oh, yeah. uh, Entourage, and then I'm on to Outlook, which uh, I have to use for work because of Exchanger. But I have all these things on my local computer, too. And I was I said, there's no way I'll ever use a web interface. For my, I'll always use a desktop pl- client. And without making a conscious decision, I slowly sort of just drifted over to the web interface. And I agree that it's it's worse than the desktop interface in many ways, but the ways that it's superior just won out instantly. The do you use all the keyboard was, commands and stuff? I do, I do. Server-side rules right. was, the, was the big one, though, because I hated having to keep rules updated because I get so much mail. A lot of it is mailing list mail. I get so much of it. It all has to be routed. Like, very little lands in my inbox inbox. Everything is routed somewhere, sometimes multiply routed or auto-replied to it. Lots of complicated stuff going on there. And doing that in seven different desktop clients killed me. And then if I was over someone else's house, I couldn't check my mail there. If I looked at it in the web interface, things wouldn't get routed right. So I just put all the rules on the server, and then the clients just reflect what the server has already done. Because of the way Google does its email with the IMAP and the labels and everything, it's not a good fit for desktop clients. And if I try to use a desktop client with my Gmail, like I'll move a message, but then it won't, it won't show up as moved, or it'll be in both places, or I'll mark it as read, but then it will not be read, or be read in one folder but not in the other that mismatch between the online and the desktop world it made me made me make a choice. It's like, look, are you gonna are the advantages of online enough to keep you into that thing or are you gonna fight it on the on the desktop? And I just I just gave in and I made the Gmail web interface my main interface to email. Uh and that's how I do everything. I still use desktop clients. I use it at work. I I use them at home too and I, I use it at home mostly so that I have all my email on a local copy because I still do have that paranoia. So I always have I, I don't I don't IMAP from Gmail. I pop from Gmail. So all of my mail is on my computer and backed up fifty times and blah 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 from the you know backup episode. But my main interface to to email is uh, with Gmail. And maybe eventually you will come around to that as well. It really it really depends. Uh, it depends on how much. I don't know if you do everything from a home office. Maybe you don't have to move around as much. But if you have to even just go to home and work and deal with that, and you want to like look at your personal email from home, having yeah. a web interface, uh, from work rather, having a web interface is nice. I, I, that was actually, you've identified the last time that I used a web interface for mail, and I, I'm fairly sure this is before Gmail existed, because I certainly would have used Gmail, or at least it was, there was, there must have been a reason, like maybe I was always using a domain, and I didn't, 
didn't want to use a pure Gmail before Google Apps, but I worked at a very large telecommunications company. I had to use their Windows, you know, 2000 was brand new, had to use that machine and used a webmail client just so that I could do email, but it was like one where you could host your own domain with them. They would give you a web interface and you could use that to send mail. And then of course at home I had everything popping down, but that was the Those last the worst. time. Those are the worst interfaces where it's just some random terrible. ISP or something. Oh, it's and they horrible. Want you to use because it just goes to show like web mail interfaces are hard to do and Google is among the best in class. And if some random company tries to do it, you don't want to use that app. I have the same thing for, you know, various uh, ISPs or small companies that have given me email, but I have to use their web interface and you just want to shoot yourself because those are, you know, it's like you guys are not Google. You're not doing a good job there. Even if it's fast and everything, it's always just ugly. The worst was for Microsoft, of course, Outlook Web Access. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Gosh, that was terrible. That was just hideous. That was like the worst of all possible worlds. It was, you know, at least when Apple tries to ape the desktop applications, they do a classy job on it. That was the Outlook Web Access was, you know. One more thing that went by in the chat back. Someone had to be in their bonnet about uh, all the problems that Gmail and Dropbox have had. Uh, the, the, The Dropbox ones they were mentioning was that back in the day, uh, Dropbox didn't understand Mac metadata very well, so if you threw an application bundle into there and you synced it up on another machine, the application wouldn't run because it screwed up the permissions or didn't handle the Mac metadata correctly. You know all the problems that yeah. um, disk server. Whereas iDisk, for all its slowness and evil and ridiculousness, got 100% of the Mac metadata because you know it's Apple doing it and that's the number one priority. And any file that you can put anywhere, you should be able to put it on an iDisk and have it show up exactly the same on another computer when you pull it up on the iDisk. Uh, and what I would and, and Gmail outages too, like Gmail losing mail or people ha- having problems with the online services. This is what I would say about those two things. One, on on the Dropbox problem with with the Mac mandate and everything, that that difference in philosophy is part of why Dropbox is better. And in the online world, it's better to get a solution for eighty percent of the people on there and just get it out the door. And what Dropbox found is that yeah, all right, we don't work with every file. We don't understand all your metadata, but what people mostly want to do is throw a little file in there that's like a plain file, a zip file, a JPEG, whatever the heck it is, and have it show up someplace else. And having it be fast, reliable, and you know access to it in everywhere and every operating system plus a web interface, that's more important than, oh, you drop a little bit of my Mac. Way and more. The 80% solution, it, and you have to do that in the online world. That's how you get ahead in online. You don't, you don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And if you chase perfect and you end up with something like iDisk, you're just completely lost. And on the Gmail reliability thing, Gmail's big out is always, what are you paying for this thing? We're giving you, you know, tremendous bandwidth and storage, gigabytes of storage. Remember when they came out, they said, we're going to give you two gigs of email storage. People thought they were kidding. Apple was like at 20 megs. You paid $100 a year for like 20 megs or whatever it was, 200 megs maybe at that point. And, And Google said, here's two gigabytes for free. And now it's up to like seven or whatever the heck it's at. Gmail's always got that out. They said, this is, you're not, it's a free service. You're not even paying for it. And if you see the services that Gmail charges for, like that, whatever it is, Gmail applications for businesses where you get your own domain or whatever, people complain like crazy about that because they say it's worse than the public interface. Like it's less reliable, it's slower, it's crappier, and they pay for it. And, and it just burns them that, that Gmail for businesses is so horrible when the Gmail for the public, I mean, I don't know, it's hard for me to tell whether Gmail for businesses is worse than the Gmail for the public, or it's just simply the fact, the fact once they start paying for it, they think it should be better. So, uh, you know, you may say it's good or bad, but any problem that Gmail has, I always think I've used Gmail for so many years and gotten so much value out of it, and I've not paid one red cent to them, and I don't even see whatever ads they think they're trying to show me. So I feel like I'm getting the better side of that deal. 
And as long as you protect yourself, as I am with having local copies of all your mail and everything, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a, a good bargain. And it's why Gmail gets away with having a few outages here and there and why mm. MobileMe does not get away with it and okay. shouldn't. Well, well said. This is a heavy-duty topic. I didn't know it was going to be such a heavy-duty topic when I picked it. Yeah. It's upsetting when you know a company that does one thing so well does something else so poorly. Next week, I think we should do the comments one. Yeah, you always have the choice. I will, All right, well, I just, just I just made it. it. I just made it. Comments. You just like to tell people what's going to come. The give next them something to look forward to. See, don't don't give in to the demands of users and listeners. See, that's the topic, isn't it? You'll see. I think you'll be surprised. No, but I mean that that very statement that you made is the topic. Don't giving in to listeners and users by allowing feedback online. That was one of the first topics I put in there because a lot of your early shows with uh, your first couple of shows with Marco and a couple of early talk shows where you talked about that. A lot of it was about what it's like to have a presence online and what kind of feedback you Uh, like getting, don't like getting, and what the value of it is. And then it got into the whole why Gruber doesn't have comments on his blog. And Marco weighed in about why he doesn't blog about tech topics. So we waited a little long to get to it, but I think we'll uh, have a lot to talk about next week. All right, John. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can hear uh, previous episodes of this show and others at 5x5.tv. And we'd love it if you would consider rating the show in iTunes. Somebody, I think, did uh, just a, to bug John, gave a really positive review and then a one-star rating. Isn't that what they did, John? They did. I got the joke. It was clever. Cool. But don't do that. Give us the, <laughs> the good ratings because it helps new people find out about the show. We want to say thanks to SourceBits.com. And don't forget to go to AudiblePodcast.com slash Hypercritical to get your free audio book and two-week trial and... Uh, And that's it. So thanks, John. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye.